Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Invest with your gut and don't be afraid to take risks. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, David Ash. David is joining us from Manhattan, New York. He is the managing director at Walker and Dunlop, which works with investment sales efforts across New York City and executes in all asset classes. David has also done $4.2 billion in sales transactions since the inception of his company, Prince Realty Advisors. David, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. David, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Happy to do it. So I took a little bit of an interesting path to where I am today. Not so different from many entrepreneurs. I started in NYU doing sort of, a, if you want to call it the club promoting, if that's the right way to say it. But I put together parties. I had a lot of fun. And I guess in hindsight, it was a little bit of a niche in terms of putting people together. Guys needed to party. Places needed patrons. And that kind of allowed me to do a lot when I was in college and meet a lot of people and kind of hone my social skill set, if you want to call it that. 
And when I left college, I had a couple of odd jobs throughout the course of college. I worked throughout the entire stint at NYU Business School. And when I graduated, I ended up in office leasing. I did not take any real estate courses when I was in NYU. I did not do anything within the real estate environment when I was in NYU. It was just suggested to me to go into this field that I would be quote unquote good at it. And in all honesty, most everybody I knew was in finance at the time. And I was not that guy. No disrespect to those people. Love them. They're doing amazing. Just wasn't my shtick. And throughout the course of my early start of the career, I did office leasing, mostly showroom leasing. I worked at a company called the Kaufman Organization for a little while. Great guys, family run, family owned, and they own a lot of stuff within the garment center in New York City, which is where a lot of fashion brands house their showrooms and so on and so forth. I cut my teeth there for a little while, basically really, really, really old school cold calling and going from office to office, cubicle to cubicle, meeting people, speaking to their HR team, looking at where and how they want to move their showroom from one building to the next. And I did okay for the most part, but eventually fell into the investment sales industry. I think probably mid-2007, where a friend of mine suggested that I introduce him to anybody who runs and controls their own building that I might run into. So eventually, I ended up actually introducing him to a group where I like to say this is a great story, just as as a precursor. The deal did not happen. So the happy ending was not there. But I had worked my butt off for a 4,000 square foot lease. And I think my commission was something around $32,000. And the owner of the building was the person who ran and handled all of that stuff. And I said, I have this friend of mine who works for this fund. Apparently they're buying a bunch of things. Would you speak to them? Two meetings happened where it was as if Chinese was spoken, even though it was technically real estate terminology. And they ended up putting an offer in for $160 million. And I was, thought it was incredible. I was like, that's fantastic. Good for you guys. And he's like, well, we're only going to pay you 1% as a commission fee. And I said, my brain was not computing the understanding. What do you mean you're going to pay only 1%? And it ended up being obviously a very, very big carrot that was dangled in front of me in terms of the idea of investment sales, which was at that time, to be honest, a little foreign to me. And I kind of took a big step back. I went into the investment sales industry in 08, but unfortunately, the market did not treat the investment sales industry and the commercial real estate industry very well. So that became my second big lesson in terms of trying to figure out how to navigate and how to create, I want to say, a little bit of a niche for yourself within a market where I knew that I was good at this business to some degree. I knew I was somebody who connected well with people and was able to more interestingly connect dots. So rather than approach the business and just try and get people to sell property, I decided to approach the business and try and figure out how I can help clients really more invest within transactions in New York City and across the country. So I took it upon myself to sort of open up my own company. I don't necessarily recommend this, For everyone, but I opened up my own company called Prince Realty Advisors at the time, having never, ever executed an investment sales transaction. I just had this idea that if I was diligent in an approach to speak to clients, to be able to help them transact, I will eventually get to where I need to get to. And slow and steady, I made my inroads. I curated most of my phone calls to more institutional clients, more public companies, more funds. And to your point earlier, I most recently was acquired by Walker and Dunlop, but to date from 2010, when I opened up Prince Realty eventually till 2020, I guess you want to say that because the last couple of years were a little bit different, if you will. We did about 
5.9 billion in total sales. And this whole endeavor with Walker and Dunlop came about very organically. And they're a public company that does tremendous business across both the capital markets and as well as investment sales markets throughout the country. And they wanted to really create a presence here in New York that was a little entrepreneurial and a little bit different. And it was really a nice fit between what I had done and what I hopefully can do within Walker and Dunlop. So it was a pretty cool thing. And that's why we're here. And I'm open to any questions you may have. <laughs> All right. A lot of questions. The 1% on $160 million would have been $1.6 million. Yep. That's true. And you balked at that because you wanted more. No, no, no. There was no balking. I just couldn't understand how I worked my butt off for four months running around Manhattan, showing a showroom tenant space and dealing with difficult old school garment owners, if that's the case, in New York City, hassling over every single nuance. And the full commission was about $32,000. And then here I am making an introduction, taking really not that much of an effort to put it together. And the potential would have been so drastically different, so much more. I couldn't understand. And I was like, I need to be in this business. This is the business I need to be in. Got it. Okay. I misunderstood. Okay. So you were yeah. like, oh my God. So four months of effort for $1.6 million would have been $100,000 a week, which is great. And Amazing. when you say investment sales, you're talking about real estate investment sales, right? Yeah. Yes. In New York in particular, which is a little bit different across the country, there are a lot of guys like myself, a lot of professionals who are, I want to say, asset agnostic in a certain sense, where our main focus is really the client. And there are many companies here in New York and obviously across the country that focus on multiple amount of assets that are both hotel, office, residential development. There's a lot of ways in which you can work with that same client in different asset classes. So it's interesting. You don't need to be a jack of all trades, so to speak, but you do need to be sort of a master of your client's needs. And that's where I'm really, really focused in terms of what they need. And that's allowed myself and my company to be able to have a hand in multiple different types of asset classes and multiple different trades across the platform. Got it. Okay. And you started Prince Realty Advisors having never completed one of these transactions before. That's correct. Were you a troublemaker in college? I wasn't a troublemaker. I would say I was always very keen on being out and being social. I always got my work done, but I was very keen on being out, being social. As I mentioned to you, I was sort of a party planner, if you will, when I was in college. So it allowed me to meet people, introduce myself to new groups of people, bring people together at different parties in different areas. So I'm telling you, it was sort of like a crash course in how to handle and work both within a corporate environment, as well as work on behalf of clients' needs and what they want across. All right. So you learned some variations. great networking skills. Yeah. And I was a troublemaker. The dean, for whatever reason, knew me on a first name basis. So this love for networking and putting people together is obviously what made you successful. How did you start Prince Realty Advisors? You didn't have any clients. You're out on your own. What did you do? Did you set up an office? Did you work out of your house? So at the time, I actually set up an office in my apartment, which I shared with a roommate at the time. I had left working at California Organization where I was doing leasing with the intent of learning the investment sales business. 
I like to say the leasing environment and the investment sales environment are both considered real estate, but the culture of those businesses and the people in which you work with and the people in which you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis are very, very different. So it's sort of different cultures in a certain sense. And I had to learn what investment sales culture was like. I had to learn a lot of the analytical pinpoints of IRRs, gross rent multiples, so on and so forth, in order to figure out where and how best to navigate kind of creating my own little niche for myself. I had worked at a firm for a very, very brief stint of time that was not particularly too helpful in that process. And where I thought I was getting mentorship and some tutelage, I did not. So the market crashed in March of 08. The people in which I thought were stewards of the business were not particularly that well suited to sort of navigate a tough environment. No names need to be said, but I had hoped for some grand idea of this is how you do things and this is how you're supposed to push forward and this is why you create a niche for yourself, but that wasn't there. And I just thought that at the time, I would be best suited to utilize my own personal skill set, which was to be focused on client needs, so to speak, rather than try and just do what everybody else was doing. If I can create a niche for myself, stick to that business plan, be very focused on making sure that I don't deviate from that plan, I felt as though that I could make a mark for myself. And at the time, the mark was not to build some substantial company and grow a boutique investment sales firm in New York. My intention at the time was to make a singular deal just so I can afford living in Manhattan, which is not so cheap. And that was really my goal. And it kind of evolved from there. So David, when you started your own company, what did you do? Just pick up the phone, start cold calling? I think the best thing I can suggest is that when I took a step back after 08, I think it's important where people like myself, and I would say to your audience, understand what they do really well and try and see where their skills are best within the industry that they're working within. There are a lot of people who are really fantastic and analytical process, and they should not deter from focusing on that in an effort to sort of try and emulate somebody else who might have success whose success is coming from the fact that they're super social and they're putting things together in a different capacity. For myself, I knew that I was really good at focusing on client needs. I knew that I was good at follow-up. I knew I was good at sort of opening the door. And I tried to build a business or I tried to build a network around being able to promote that about myself. Plain and simple. I just knew that I was good at making phone calls. I knew that I would do what was necessary to introduce myself to who needed to get into whatever building they wanted to get into. And I put myself in that position to focus on those areas. Back then, were there a lot of pocket listings or were most deals on the commercial MLS? No, everything I did was direct and off market. So at the time, including today, a lot of deals are actually really done through a marketing process with offering memorandums and there's call it an auction process, if you will. And there's a lot of value to that process. But again, I did not think, and I did not suspect that I would speak to a publicly traded company or an institution who would afford me the opportunity with no real resources at that time, the chance to exclusively represent them and go to market with a product. So how was I going to then compete and how was I going to approach the business and differentiate myself? And to what I mentioned before is that I knew that I was good at the hustle. 
I knew that that was something that I can sell to somebody differently than your traditional brokerage companies in New York at the time. So I was selling my hustle. Tell me what you're looking for and I'll go out and try and find it. And all of this was direct, basically through my calls, through my networking and through my knocking on doors, literally every single day. I would sit there, circle what groups were buying certain assets, figure if they were doing the same thing over and over in Manhattan or across the country, and then go and try and figure out where I can call them. When I was calling for, let's say, Ash Patel, you want to buy a hotel in Manhattan. If you tell me we're really focused on buying a hundred rooms or smaller hotels in Manhattan. We're really good at that product category. We have the team in place to do it well. And we really, really want to buy those things here. I'd be able to go out on your behalf and really curate that search for you and really focus on where I can make those calls on your behalf, almost like an outsourced acquisitions. And essentially I was working for you for free and you had no reason not to use me. You had no reason not to tell me the things that you were looking for. If anything, I was putting you at an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage. And that was always my take. It was good. It suited my skill set. And I thought it was a needed additive within the market here where people weren't necessarily doing that all the time. We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Everyone is looking for a recession-resilient investment. How can you try to prevent from losing money by picking the wrong fund and sponsor? Right now, you can get Reliant Real Estate Management's free guide, 10 Things to Consider in a Real Estate Investment Fund, by visiting besteverreliant.com. Answer questions like, is the organization's focus on you? And does the fund keep employees? Reliant Real Estate Management is ranked one of the top 20 largest self-storage operators in the country with $1 billion in self-storage assets. After completing three funds and selling 38 properties with $0 of investor principal loss, they have an average project level IRR of 33% in just over 3.5 years. Visit besteverreliant.com right now to receive the 10 things to consider in a real estate investment fund and get access to their latest investment opportunities. That's besteverreliant.com, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R-R-E-L-I-A-N-T.com. David, are you primarily in New York? Yes. We focus mostly in New York and the Tri-State area. What are office and hotels doing right now in New York? Office is unfortunately a very, very, very tough market right now here in New York, as it is across the country. Work from home, the pandemic has really thrown a wrench within the office market here. A lot of people are shying away from investment in the office market. I, for one, have always been somebody who was a little bit more contrarian. I think that there is opportunity in the chaos. If you want to kind of say something like that, I think that the office market will endure in Manhattan. It's not been very, very good. I'll tell you that much. And with rising rates, it's been very, very difficult to execute on even stable, strong deals because Owners are at this point sort of still lagging behind where pricing needs to be, given the fact you are borrowing at costs that are much higher than they were a month ago, two months ago, six months ago. So there's just this lag and there's really virtually no trades right now within the office market, to be honest. Are you seeing a lot of them being foreclosed on or CMBS lenders taking them back? 
So to sort of change gears, the hotel industry has actually come back pretty strong. There are a substantial amount of hotels that haven't opened since the pandemic. There are a lot of creative uses that are now coming up and trying to be reworked within those hotels to convert to smaller rental units, to convert to communal living. I'm working currently with a client now based out of Mexico, who's extremely interested in buying vacant hotels within Manhattan and across the country in order to convert to micro unit rentals, short-term rentals or long-term rentals, depending on what the zoning allows. But there are creative uses that are happening a lot within the hotel industry. And that actually is bleeding into the office market as well. In New York, there are a lot of particular zoning issues within certain neighborhoods and certain areas, but the office market, there are a lot of deals that are falling by the wayside. And if you're an owner who has owned a building for quite some time and has taken some pretty substantial leverage, you're facing a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs if you were to then go and refinance your property. And what you thought your property was worth, or you were told by a lot of brokers who promised you some crazy numbers a couple of years ago, it's not there right now. It's something that people will need to start living within the reality, hopefully. And there will be some positive things happening, I believe, hopefully first or second quarter of next year. And you mentioned that reality comment because right now sellers still appear a bit delusional in that they want pricing from a year or two ago and buyers have a much higher cost of leverage. So they need prices to come down. Is that correct? Yes, that's very correct. It's a very age-old economic term, losses loom larger than gains. The idea that you had a building that was worth, let's just say $100 million, but in reality, it's worth $60 million today. It doesn't matter that you bought it for 10, for example, in 1985 or whatever. You still feel like you lost that 40 million. And it's hard for a lot of owners in positions where they had considered doing things a year or two or three ago to own up to that reality. They will eventually, as things kind of just keep going and the market will establish a particular cap rate and a particular understanding of where things are trading, but it will take a lot of time. David, do you personally invest in real estate in New York? I have, yes, personally invested in real estate in New York. It's been on a very unique one-off basis through friends and family who have been doing certain product categories that I wanted to be involved with. They are completely, completely different across the spectrum, an office building, a residential building. I'm actually involved in a property that's being converted to a hostel in New York City. Very one-off, unique asset types that I thought would be worthwhile If you had to invest your own capital today, what asset class would you purchase in New York? Okay. So again, I'm a risk taker and I'm somebody who sees value and opportunity in things that are traditionally not exactly the dish of the day, so to speak. I personally think that there's a tremendous amount of value in office. I know the product category very, very well. It's extremely depressed right now in terms of valuations, and there's not a tremendous amount of capital looking to be involved within the office space. I think that that will change over the course of the next couple of years, and I think that the market will come back strong. I think New York is New York, and people will always want to be here. I think that there will be a shift, if you will, and there will be a flight to quality on a lot of these assets, and some of these older buildings that haven't been reworked and renovated in quite some time, there'll be a real opportunity there to pick up 
properties at pretty stable price that you can then convert and work on something very, very unique moving forward. Like I was mentioning to you before, to residential, to short-term living, to commercial. There's just a lot of that that I think will come down the road. So that's where I would invest personally. What would you not invest in? What category would you stay away from? I would personally stay away from rent-stabilized residential. In New York in particular, I know you have listeners across the country and a lot of other parts of the world. In New York, there is a tough political climate where it comes to rent-stabilized, rent-controlled units. There's a lot of difficulty in navigating that system. There are some people who are phenomenal at that and they've been doing it forever, but it is difficult to run a building where you are handcuffed, so to speak, in terms of investing in your property if you can't actually get that out of the rents increasing, for example. So that's something that I would shy away from personally. It's a little bit difficult to navigate. There's a lot of red tape when it comes to handling both the tenants as well as the improvements in the building. So if I had to pick one category, I think New York real estate's fantastic. Let me be clear. I'm a big You're biased, man. Hold on. You're biased. That's your market. <laughs> I'm definitely biased. I'm definitely biased. But a lot of people gave New York a bad rap during the pandemic. But I think that New York is New York. It's very cliched, but I think cliches are usually true because they're said quite often. And I think New York is actually a place to invest a lot of capital. And what kind of cap rates are you seeing for retail, multifamily? Multifamily in general is still the strongest asset class here in New York. The cap rates that were being traded for argument's sake only a couple of months ago, prior to this multiple increase within the Fed rates were, let's say, four and a quarter, a four cap to four and a quarter, give or take, depending on whether or not there was tax abatements in place, you'd be looking at maybe a five, five and a quarter. Today, that shifted tremendously upwards. Unfortunately, borrowing costs have gone through the roof. The CMBS market is all but shut down. So the cap rates within a, let's say, residential rental property today are close to a five and a quarter. Obviously, you have groups that will take negative leverage for the right kind of deal, the right kind of assets, but the market has shifted. Borrowing costs really dictate a lot of where cap rates lie. What do you see for retail? Retail is interesting. It was the hottest thing in New York for quite some time. And I think the shift was a long time coming where people were viewing retail as more of an experience than sort of a money generator for a lot of these companies that are very, very, very keen on building out their e-commerce. So look, retail in New York is always going to be extremely well-received and there's always going to be the Madison Avenues and the Fifth Avenues and so on. The pricing has come down, but for quality tenancy, there's still a lot of value in terms of cap rates. It's really hard to pinpoint a specific cap rate, to be honest with you. On a quality asset that is a great credit tenant, that has been paying rent through COVID, you're looking at probably a five and a half, six cap, depending on where you can borrow and how long the lease term is. There's a lot of opportunistic groups that are out there that are looking for vacant retail in order to reimagine that as well, to create some experiences. So I'd like to say that depending on where you're looking in terms of your corridors, retail has actually come back in a pretty serious way. And it's opened the door, just so you know, a lot of these tenants that have left during COVID has actually opened the door for a lot of new concepts and a lot of new groups that were out there that were priced out of the market, so to speak. So you see a lot of new retail popping up all over the city. What is the average size of one of your transactions? While I was at Prince, average size of transaction was give or take about 75 to 150 million. 
All right, so there's probably not a whole lot of value add in that arena. There is for sure. Most of the clients that I've been working with across the last 10 years or so have mostly been institutional in nature and very sophisticated groups that have a decent amount of capital to place. So we're talking about equity checks upwards from 25 to $100 million of equity checks, depending on how much your borrowing costs are. So you're looking at deal profiles within that range. But opportunistic deals are actually deals that are very, very, very in line with what's going on right now. Buyers of that caliber, are they looking more to deploy capital or are they looking for super high returns on their capital? Opportunistic investors are traditionally looking for super high returns. 20 plus percent IRRs over the course of a three, five or seven year hold, depending on what kind of asset class, what kind of group we're talking about. Core plus to value add, that kind of barometer has been shifting along the way. Core plus used to be a low double digit IRR, and now it's probably in the mid teens, give or take. Not everybody plays in that $100 million asset class. Can you give us an example of a 20% return for, let's say, a retail property? A 20% IRR. A 20% IRR for a retail property. On a $100 uh, million dollar purchase. On a $100 million dollar purchase. So you want the math behind it? <laughs> no, I want to know what kind of property is that? In New York, you have a lot of different asset classes and a lot of different properties that are there. So if you take a retail property that perhaps is sputtering along and they have, let's say, 10,000 square feet and 5,000 square feet of that is leased to an older tenant who's kind of tired and they've been paying the lower market rent. You might be able to renegotiate them to exit the property and then release the space to one person being able to take on the full 10,000 square feet at a much higher rental rate. It's kind of very difficult to pinpoint exactly. Well, know. maybe another way to answer that question is what does $100 million buy you for retail? Hopefully more than 10,000 square feet. Yes, of course. I'm just trying to figure out how to get you to a 20% IRR. Yeah, uh, maybe that's just a better question. What does $100 million buy you for retail? $100 million? Is it a city block? No, for sure not. Okay, it's sort of like a chicken or the egg, right? If you're looking at a corner store on 57th Street and 5th Avenue with a Bulgari paying $4,000 a square foot, tremendous credit, super, super high profile location, that deal is a really, really, really low cap rate. So let's just say that's $100 million. That's a really low cap rate. That $100 million might buy you a full block front somewhere else that doesn't have necessarily that cachet, doesn't have that tenancy, but you have that opportunity to really create the opportunistic returns that you're looking for, depending on where it is, especially in Manhattan. Manhattan is a very, very, very interesting place where you have one block that is commanding a tremendous price per square foot, and you walk about 100 feet to the next block, and it's a completely different market, it's a completely different price point, and it's a completely different customer. What is the best real estate investing advice ever? Invest with your gut and don't be afraid to take risks. Got it. Yeah. David, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. David, what's the best ever book you recently read? The best ever book I recently read, I actually reread The Real Estate Game by William Purvu. Phenomenal book, old school, core value, how to be a proper investor, owner, and manager of real estate. David, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I actually have a big, big, big place in my heart for volunteering. I spend a lot of time visiting Holocaust survivors 
and I spend a lot of time volunteering with special needs kids in terms of being a big brother. I actually also started a volunteer service called Donate Your Time Events. It's a nonprofit that I started about six years ago that essentially, ironically, connects people almost like a broker would who need and want outlets to volunteer to organizations that have those opportunities. You can't get enough of that networking, can you? (laughs) I just like connecting people. It's something that I really am fortunate to be able to do. Well, David, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Walker and Dunlop website. You can reach me at dash at walkerandunlop.com and happy to answer and help anybody along their pathway to investing and being the best possible real estate broker. If they're going to be a broker, they can, they can be. David, thank you very much for your time today. You started out as a club promoter in college and you found your gift in just putting people together. I had a great career in real estate and you gave us a bit of an insight on New York City real estate. Thank you again for your time today. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.